we had no school today. Yeah. Because of the, I'm putting quotes here, wintry mix. <laughs> oh my God. It's just raining, you guys. It's just raining and there's no school. I never got this kind of right time off school. I feel like it had to legit snow to get off school. Yes. When I was in school. Yes. This is going to sound like one of those uphill both ways stories. But <laughs> For sure. Where I grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania. So it's a little different. I mean, I remember... There was this one snowstorm. I'm, you know, 16 and a half and I have my driver's license and I'm driving to school and it's snowing outside. And I grew up driving back roads, slippery, like windy, hilly. But they had all of us drive to school in crazy weather and then gave us an early dismissal at noon or whatever. And it was like even worse on the roads and all these teenagers with their driver's licenses like, just, okay, go home now. <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was it was trial by fire to learn how to drive in snow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what it was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It should be okay. I think we're a, a little too precious with these kids. Yeah, too precious. I mean, I understand where they're coming from. I understand, but it is still frustrating. So you're listening to this the week following, but yeah, we. Just oh, I have... think there's snow in the forecast next week too. Oh, okay. This is evergreen then. This content. <laughs> We're never going to run out of snow talk, it seems, this year. <laughs> I actually, when we got our big storm, I had to go out the next day. I had to drive. And I had two feelings while I was doing that. The first one is, I actually love driving in the snow. There's something, like, kind of fun about feeling your car, like, slipping and then getting yourself back in control. Oh, my God. You are so weird. <laughs> <laughs> living on the edge daredevil is it's so strange because it's like my dad's voice comes into my head and he's like all right now do this use the force yes <laughs> use the force <laughs> that's how it feels it's like really fun oh <laughs> that's special though the other part of me is like driving in the snow in this area is really not very fun no. it's just two very opposing feelings because <laughs> I just remember trying to pull out of a stop sign onto a pretty major road and nothing had been plowed at that corner. So like if you stopped at the stop sign, you're not you're not starting up again. Uh-huh. And I had to like reverse my car to get out of the part that was slippery and then give myself like a <laughs> hope for the best. <laughs> give myself yeah. like a running start to get on the road. <laughs> hope no one's coming. Like I said, in a sick way, that's uh, I enjoy that. <laughs> Interesting. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. How's audition prep going? It's going. I'm feeling... You know, we were talking in our practice group about this and about how the run up to an audition, you can kind of feel crazy. Like, is this reality or does life even exist after the audition happens? Mm. Like, you can't imagine yourself as post audition you. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Everything is like pre audition or post audition. I can't let myself think about music I have to prepare or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's just like, 
whatever happens on that day determines whatever happens after that day. It's so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. It's like this alternate reality of life. But actually, I found that I can't really get myself in that isolated feeling because, you know, I have a family. I have kids I have to take care of. Talia's got her first audition on Saturday oh. for All County Orchestra. Oh. So she's 12. Look at you two. It's audition weekend. It's audition weekend. I love that so much. <laughs> so I'll be like over it, whatever stage it is by the time that she auditions. But yeah, it's interesting being where I am preparing for this audition at this point in my career and her at the very beginning. <laughs> of her musical life. Yeah. So it's a lot like raising kids in any other time. It's like trying not to impart my anxieties on her mm -hmm. so early in her experience. So I'm trying to make it just about, you're going to go in there and you're going to play musically and have fun. And I'm trying to take a little bit of my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> I remember being little well first of all i was gonna say actually in some ways that may add a little extra challenge for you i'm just thinking about being at home if you have those kind of like freak out moments about your own preparation or like how you're feeling about the day you're probably trying extra hard not to project that outward because you don't want her to feel it yeah but actually i haven't really had very many freak out moments good I think I'm just not putting as much pressure on myself good. about this. I feel good about where I am. And my goal is just to play musically yeah, with courage. I love that. I think that's great. I know I've told myself that's my goal in the past, but I really feel that way this year. I don't feel like I'm just saying it. I feel like I'm really just, that's my goal is just to go out there and play musically and I know that some things are not planned are going to happen, but I don't know. I don't want to say I care less, but I care less. <laughs> yes, I love it. Okay, I was just going to say, thinking about Talia auditioning, I, I remember this sort of roller coaster of an experience I had with auditions at her age and then through high school. And I don't know exactly when it happened, but when I was really young, I would take these auditions and positive things would just happen, you know, because I, at that point, natural talent makes a difference. <laughs> so I was succeeding sort of in spite of what limitations I had. And then at some point that shifted for a little while to where I was aware of the competition aspect. It made me feel pressure. And then I didn't do so well for a little while. Mm. And consistently it was like one of those, why aren't you being seated better. Why this? Why that? And I, the answer was, well, I'm just not auditioning very well. And then something happened where I just shifted. It was probably, I don't know, like ninth grade-ish, something like that. I just shifted this mentality to be like, I'm going to go in and I'm going to just not care. I'm going to go in and act like I don't care what happens in this audition. I'm just going to play. And as long as I just go in there like that, that's going to be fine. And then I started having success in high school with auditions. Mm. And then, you know, shift into adulthood and all those little doubts and insecurities 
build over time and Mm -hmm. the pressure on myself built over time. I think that's exactly what happened. The like ability to not quote, not care went away. So it's interesting to hear you say that because I also think, don't we hear stories about people when they have success with auditions, they're like somewhat surprised because they're like, you know, I went in there and I really didn't actually care if I won this job or not. It just takes the pressure off. I always question that. (laughs) Who doesn't care if they do well (laughs) on audition? What kind of freak are you? (laughs) Seriously, like we spend all of our lives trying to get things perfect. And of course... Even when you win an audition, there's going to be things that you wish you had done differently. Mm -hmm. I don't know of anyone who says that they played a perfect audition or they were sure they were going to advance. No. I think that's just us as musicians and artists and the perfectionists that we are. Yeah. We'll see what happens. When you listen to this, it will be post. That's right. (laughs) I'll be living in my post-audition life. Yes, you will. I'd like that you're not putting pressure on yourself. That's the skill I would like to hone in on. And I'll I'll tell you one more anecdote on this side of things, because I haven't talked about this on the podcast, but for our listeners, I was at one point planning to take this audition as well. And I'm sure some of you will resonate with this side of the journey too. The weeks were creeping closer, hadn't gotten the excerpts out, hadn't had time, quite frankly, (laughs) to get the excerpts out, wasn't making the time. And I got to mid-December and I just was like, you know, I'm just not in a place to take this right now. For whatever reason, I'm not motivated to work on it. And the thing that felt different for me was that I've been completely okay with the decision not to do it. And I think in the past, there's that pressure. There's that pressure, especially when it's a local audition. You're like, I gotta take it. I have to take this. I'm supposed to take this thing. Mm-hmm. everybody's going to take it. Why wouldn't I? And the answer in this case ended up being, it's just not something that I'm feeling called to do. And that's okay too. So what I want to share with you, Steph, was that earlier this week, I sat down on a Zoom with our friend Molly Sharp, who is doing a lot of work, basically recognizing trauma and how it may inform or assist people getting past certain blocks they have and stuff like that because I was texting her when I was trying to make this decision and I'm going I don't know is this because I feel triggered by the experience and I don't want to go through it or is it because I really just my interests are elsewhere and I don't want to focus my energy on that kind of music preparation and she's like well let's talk about it (laughs) so we did we talked for a little while about it and it was funny because it was both the answer is both which of course, is often the case. I think right now, musically, my interests are very diversified. And I'm fortunate to get some orchestra work here so that I can fill that orchestra cup. But there's just other things that I'm feeling more compelled to do right now that are taking my time. But on the other side of the coin, we started talking about my history and particularly with the journey I've been taking in the last year or so to try to unravel the deep, deep, deep seated work I have on my people-pleasing tendencies Mm. and how toxic that can be in the environment of taking an audition because really what could be more of a sort of accelerator for people to try to get approval (laughs) than than to play for all of your colleagues and ask them to tell you what you're doing wrong and how you can do it better. (laughs) (laughs) So I have this vision in my mind that if I get to the point where I want to take an audition again, that that would be my work too. How do I just do this for myself? 
and enjoy the experience. And Molly essentially said at the end of the conversation, you know, it's possible that that process could be a very intense uh, healing experience, but also it would be the next level of struggle to go through to, mm-hmm. to kind of work through those things. So it was interesting because we kind of planted the seed for a maybe down the road. <laughs> That's really interesting. And that brought up something for me that's different Mm. in this preparation than in previous ones. I have not sought out anyone's opinion about my playing. Now, I've examined my own playing Mm -hmm. by videoing myself extensively. Yes. And watching that back and critiquing it to figure out what I would like to hear in my playing, what I want to project, what's coming across. But I haven't gone to anyone and been like, could you tell me what I'm doing wrong? Could you tell me what I should consider here or there? The truth is that I would venture to say I have played upwards of 30 to 40 auditions and many of them at the professional level. And in those preparations, I have sought that out. I kind of feel like at this point in my life, I kind of know what to do. I know what they're listening for. I know what to expect that someone might say, I don't need that input anymore. The only reason why I would need that input was be to like for adversity training, to put myself in that situation. That is really different in this preparation. Just trusting my own musical taste and experience to prepare myself for playing for these people. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, what a cool process because you are like the student and the teacher at the same time. And how much more evolved can your playing get if you're doing that? It's just so, so great. And one of the things that Molly told me is that in the past, she has had excerpt burning parties. (laughs) (laughs) I may do this. I may take all of the excerpts I have and catalog them, of course, first. But I may take everything I have from like high school on because some of my excerpts have markings in them from high school and burn them (laughs) ceremoniously (laughs) and then start from scratch in music because I already know how to do all of those things. And if I start that way, trusting that you already have all of that knowledge and then using it to inform yourself. You guys are going to hear our conversation with Mayanne. So this is actually a really, really good segue. One thing that she talks about is how by being yourself, by being authentic to yourself, that opportunities and pairings with organizations and people will come about organically. Because you are going to naturally fit with wherever you end up. I think at the end of the day, You have to have an identity within yourself musically. And when that lines up with an organization that loves you for your musical taste, then that's a natural pairing. It's a natural place to end up. And she feels that way too. Yeah. She really has, I think, a very strong belief that staying true to yourself, like you said, Steph, keeping a positive attitude, forming positive relationships with people, You never know who's going to come into your atmosphere. When you put that out there, the right people find you for the right things. That is very true in many aspects of life. It was true for us with this podcast. We didn't go looking for a podcast partner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) An opportunity came about very organically. So it's hard to trust that, I think, especially when you're young in the audition process. 
right? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. When you are new in the audition process, you need that input. Right. You don't know. Yeah, you have to learn how. You've never played these pieces in real life. Yeah. You don't know what a committee is listening for. But given 20 to 30 to 40 auditions, my friend, you know what they're listening for. Yeah. And every time we've played Beethoven's Fifth Symphony in an orchestra, we've been informed by the musical choices that are being made with that group, Mm -hmm. which in some ways is even more invaluable than just doing it in a vacuum. Because most of those pieces now we can just hear. Totally. We're in it. (laughs) And you have to, at some point, just let go of all that should and do what you like. Yeah. And what you believe. And as long as you're playing in tune, you're playing the right rhythms, whatever, there's something else that you have to offer Yes. in that situation. Yes. You're not a robot. No. We're all unique human beings with different things to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mayan was inspiring. She was just a bundle of inspiration, wasn't she? She's got so many great stories, too. Yes. She's literally traveled the world. She's had all these interactions with all different kinds of people, all different kinds of organizations. And she just strikes me as a very authentic person. Absolutely. What you see is what you get. What you see on the podium, if you've ever watched her (laughs) conduct, take this opportunity and go to YouTube, just search her up and watch her conduct a little bit. And what you see on the podium is what you're going to hear here. Yeah. She's just full of energy. She's just a very engaging person. Lovely human being. Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate that we got to meet with her and talk with her. Yeah. This was a real treat. So settle in and enjoy this conversation. Prepare to be moved and inspired and lifted up and enjoy this conversation with Mayan Chen. As a teacher, one of my main goals is to get each of my students set up for success right from the start. And part of that process is trying to find the shoulder rest solution that gives each of them freedom of movement and provides for tension-free playing. Yes, but I always feel like I'm jerry-rigging one solution or another by adding extra pads or making a fussy ad hoc version to fit a student's body. Totally. That's why I was so excited to learn that there are arc rests in different sizes. Even one for my youngest students, itty bitty violas and violins. It's called the shoulder buddy and uh, it's basically the cutest thing you have ever seen. Oh my gosh, you guys, it comes in colors. So now your students can pick their favorite color and get a simple shoulder pad solution that will set them up for long-term comfort and a great sound, since we all know that those tiny instruments could use all the resonance help they can get. If you're a teacher and are interested in having a few on hand to try with your students, reach out to Erin and Tigran at thearcrest.com, or you can also find them on Instagram at thearcrest. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T. Hello all, Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph and I both have been taking our violas to Potters for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to Potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas there. 
bottom line is that we both love the Potters team and we're thrilled to welcome them as a season two sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. Our guest today is conductor Mayan Chen. She's praised for her dynamic, passionate conducting style. Mayan is a Taiwanese American conductor, and she's acclaimed for infusing orchestras with energy, enthusiasm, and high level music making. A favorite among communities and orchestras alike, Ms. Chen is a sought after guest conductor and has appeared with orchestras in the Americas, including Baltimore, Cincinnati, Chicago, Seattle, Vancouver, just to name a few. And of course, she's in Europe. She's been in Taiwan, the United Kingdom, Scandinavia. And currently, Ms. Chen serves as the music director of the MacArthur Award-winning Chicago Sinfonietta, a position that she's held since 2011, where she's continuing the orchestra's tradition of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So many accolades. To name them all, we would be here all day. (laughs) But she's also made Grammy-nominated recordings, won various distinguished conducting awards. Suffice it to say, it is an honor and a pleasure to welcome conductor Man Chen to the Viola-centric podcast. We're so happy you're here. Well, it's my honor to get to know both of you ladies who have brought so much joy and fun through your podcast. So it's, it's a great pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I am curious about what brought you to the Chicago Sinfonietta, how you found yourself there, and what are your favorite parts of being involved in that organization? You know, sometimes life has so many twists and turns, and I think so many times that people or organization found us Mm. before we realized that we echo with its mission. And so Symphonietta is one such story. I always love working with you as I started my career with the Portland Youth Philharmonic. That's the oldest youth orchestra in the country. You will think it's in the East Coast, but it's actually in Portland, Oregon. Oh. And I've championed for a minority composers even before I realized that's going to sort of fall into my lap as a wonderful thing that fell from above. And so when Sinfonietta was looking for guest conductors and in a sense, looking for their next music director, even though they didn't make that very clear to every guest conductor. I mean, I was just honored to be invited because when I was serving as assistant conductor with the Atlanta Symphony, Baltimore Symphony, I realized that we're serving in many cities in our country, major populations that includes African-American population that we just didn't quite tap into. Mm -hmm. And so as a young conductor, I had to search for pieces by African-American composers. And the Bible for me was the recordings by SETI Records of Sifaniata's, the African-American Heritage Series. And not knowing that one day I will have the chance to be a guest conductor conducting a program, a sort of East meets West program. And so really not expecting it to go any further than just being a guest. You know, I tell people guest conducting is like speed dating. (laughs) I love that so much. You have four (laughs) rehearsals to get to know each other. And I think the best way for myself and for any young conductors out there is just to be yourself. Mm -hmm. Because if you find groups that appreciate you as who you are and not trying to pretend to be someone else, then you will find your partner in a beautiful way. And 
such was the story with Sofonietta that musicians fell in love with me. I fell in love with them. I mean, there's not really another ensemble at that time with such long history that was founded based on diversity, equity, and inclusion through innovative programmings. I remember being a young conductor reading the front page of New York Times. I think this was 2006, before cell phone was a household item, <laughs> that there was a symphony orchestra that commissioned a concertino for cell phone orchestra. And I remember thinking to myself, what a crazy group. Right. <laughs> and not knowing one day yeah. I had the chance to compete, to be a music director of this group. And I always love using music as the universal language that bridge so many gaps, so many different cultures. But on the art form I so love, which is a symphony orchestra, to use that as a vehicle to champion for diversity, I welcome that chance. I mean, I remember the last phone call the search committee had with me. I was conducting Taipei Symphony in Shanghai during the Shanghai Expo. And I've been speaking Mandarin and all of a sudden at five o'clock in the morning, I had to remember how to speak English. And the search committee asking me, this must be the 20th time they asked me, are you sure you want to champion for diversity, inclusion, which is the main mission that this orchestra was founded. And I was so stunned that they had to ask that question over and over again, because that seemed to me as just like the best mission you could ever wish for a symphony orchestra. And so you could say the Chicago Sinfonietta has found a partner in me, and I was so fortunate to found a partner that gave me the best human mission ever as a musician, as a conductor. Yes. That's an amazing story. Eliz and I talk a lot about just being yourself, which seems like the most simple thing that you can possibly ask of someone but it's the hardest thing to put into practice, isn't it? Totally. Because we have all these expectations that we project on ourselves that were from other people, from our education or whatever, and you have to kind of come back around to that. Yes, I so love how Stephanie, you put it, and Liz, you guys talked about being authentic, and that's an important part of being an artist. Before Sinfonietta, I was music director of the Portland Youth Harmonic, and I feel a little stuck in terms of, I couldn't get my green card. This is after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And my lawyer literally said to me, man, they have changed the rules after 9-11. So even though I have a doctorate degree from University of Michigan, it doesn't automatically qualify me for a green card anymore. So I only have two choices. She said, either marry an American, that's a quicker way to obtain the green card, or go win an international competition. And I didn't know which way was harder. (laughs) But I went for the international competition. And I remember being one of 242 applicants from 40 countries in the world to be invited the final 30 applicants for the live round with Danish National Symphony. This is in Copenhagen. And without knowing much about Scandinavian culture and, you know, I have no single tie in Europe whatsoever. I was completely American trained. So I was just trying to stay in this country that gave me the chance to be a conductor. And I remember I passed the first round, but it was the second round that I decided, you know what, I have nothing to lose. They give six prizes 
And as long as I have one of the six prizes and not too many Americans before me, <laughs> then I I met my goal. And so I was very relaxed. I went in, and the orchestra literally have seen me just the day before. So I went and I said, "Well, long time no see," and I got a a good chuckle out of the orchestra, not knowing the Danish people are big on humor. <laughs> and so again, you know, it takes courage to be yourself, but oftentimes I find being true to myself is the only way. I get to find a way of working with the groups that seems to match my temperament. I love that you mentioned this as a piece of advice too for other conductors, because I have been a part of a couple of conductor searches with some orchestras in recent years. Of course, mm-hmm. and it is very clear when someone shows up who. By all information that we have, incredible musician, incredible director, but you can tell that they want to present themselves some way. Yes, and then you can really tell the people who show up and are just themselves, totally. and it always resonates better when you get to know this person for who they really are. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. This is maybe a question out of left field, but <laughs> I know you're you're very invested in being authentic and being true to yourself. But have you ever felt the pressure to be something different to make up for some expectation that people have of a conductor? Let me answer it this way. I think that's a young conductor in general, regardless of our gender background. When we come in contact with major orchestras, they're always like, "Hmm, what does this one bring?" I share with other young conductors, orchestras. Some are really fun, but sometimes they can be like wolves. <laughs> they smell blood. You are done. <laughs> No question about that. That's right. We've been on that end of it. That's right. And so I find it interesting as a young conductor that I have to navigate through many challenging situations, not necessarily because of my gender or because of my background,、mm-hmm. but just just simply because they play the Beethoven Fifth fifty times or more <laughs> in their life, and this could be my first time conducting it. I think what Liz shared. Also resonate with me because I grew up as a violinist,、mm. and so I always try to put myself in the orchestra's shoe. We're gonna be where we are. We can't be, you know, Ricardo Muti, even if we try <laughs> to be. I mean, it's just you need experience to build up that musicianship, that leadership that comes naturally. It's like an MBA course just to be a conductor. How do you manage your instrument, which happen to be live human beings? That have feelings,、right. and their feelings change depends on what they have played the night before or the week before. There's so many unknown elements into how they are perceiving you as a newcomer. Sifaniata, we have launched about a dozen conductors of color into the radar, including international. And my advice to them is always: if you have to choose between musicality and technique. There's no question. Choose music.、Mm. The music has messages. You have to be convinced what the composer is trying to say.、Mm. And yes, you need the technique to show it. But at the core of it, make music.、Mm. And if you make a mess of your technique, I think people are more forgiving when you make something out of a rehearsal, even if it's just 15 minutes audition. And then also, even when you make a big mistake. Be able to admit it and say, "Well, let me try that again. Sorry, it's my fault." 
instead of trying to blame it on somebody else. Yes. Because you know we are all humans. Yeah. Yes. The scary thing as I develop my guest conducting career now it gets a little bit easier. But I can tell you, before that first rehearsal of a new orchestra, it's it's like the butterflies before a, you know like a blind date. You don't know <laughs> who you're gonna get, whether you're gonna hit it off or maybe it will be a disaster that will ruin your entire career. I mean, you have the entire spectrum of fear. But I try to tell myself, we're all here for the music. That's what I try to focus on and try to be a decent human being. You know, I think the time of the maestros being sort of a tyrant has kind of gone, and I think you can see a lot of orchestras. They're opting for people who are good artists, but also easy people to work with. Yeah. What I didn't realize until I had my first manager, Michal Schmidt, who I still hold dearly, who has passed away、uh, unexpectedly many years ago, but I still hold. Her advice to my heart dearly. She tried to tell me, "Man, this field is all about personal connections," <laughs> and that's like, who, why didn't I know that about during my school days? Because I think the more people you know, the more opportunities will come your way. And also, try not to burn any bridges <laughs> <laughs> if you can. You know, it's so easy. When we're in school, we think, "I'm not going to see this person down the road," and lo and behold, I've walked into. So many orchestras, and there's always someone that I went to school with. Oh, they knew someone who I went to school with. Oh, they study with the same teachers. It's such a high knit community that I hope people realize to start networking, even when you think networking is not so important. And I know both of you freelance, and you know. Yes. It's a big deal. Oh my gosh! Yes, you know, social media is a funny thing too, <laughs> because I, <laughs> in fact, Liz and I were just talking with someone who we didn't think that we were going to have any friends in common. This person's in a completely different city, and sure enough, he was friends with one of our guests from the first season, who's one of our close friends.、Yes. And this was just a random person who we met on social media. From a completely different city, and I mean, it's absolutely true. The music world is so small. Yeah, it's probably not six degrees. It's probably like three degrees of separation. Yeah, totally between all of us. <laughs> and we're making a lot more connections making this podcast because all of our guests—that's an entire different network of people who now we're connected with, which is just a lovely way. I mean. Who would think that during the pandemic, during a global pandemic, we would be expanding our network、mm -hmm. yes. like that? And I think that's happened to a lot of people. Yes, they've really expanded their network in ways that they wouldn't have expected in a global way because here we all are at home. But now I can FaceTime with someone who's in Europe. Yes.、Yeah. It just opens you up to a lot of other possibilities. We all took to the internet for connection and created like a more expansive environment for us to all get to know each other.、Mm -hmm. And I don't think we were as willing to be that present online before because we were all busy day to day in our own lives. Right. So the network that mattered the most was the one that was right there. But、That's、now、right. you realize it's getting so huge. And I love that you brought this up about your training because. I think about this with respect to all of us being trained as musicians. That ability to form relationships with other people in a professional way is not fostered、mm -hmm. in a music degree. 
where it is fostered in many other pursuits. That's right. It's sort of the way that business is done everywhere else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I bet a conductor actually is probably the most interpersonal like relationship of all of us. You're like the center of attention and you have to make connections mm -hmm. with people right away. Right. Yeah. Although I have to tell you guys, I was so shy. If I knew what it took to be a conductor, I think I wouldn't have pursued it. Uh, really? Wow. Yeah, it was just, I grew up with parents who loved music but never had the chance for music education. They grew up right after Japanese occupied Taiwan. And it was so funny, they were so naive to think that the easiest way to have free concert at home was to have their two daughters each take up an instrument. <laughs> Child labor. <laughs> That's right. I was I was supposed to accompany my sister on the violin. I was on the piano, and they will be happily forever. Except I have my sister to thank. She was more of a visual artist at heart, and you know when you think about it, visual artists could create in their own space and time, and then when they're ready, they share with the world. Mm -hmm. But we have to create as performing artists especially music, we have to perform in time. That she didn't like at all. And so she would find ways to break strings and just find any excuse out of her violin lesson. And so I ended up taking up the double duties of entertaining my parents. So I had my sister to so thank for that. But, you know, my light bulb moment came when I was 10, when I play for the first time in an orchestra but as a shy violinist. I mean, I really was shy in terms of interacting with other people, mm. but I, when I saw this person on the podium using only body language to help make the biggest sound in the room, I ran home and told my parents, piano and violin are fun, but I want to be a conductor. Uh. And they frowned and like worry, and of course, they were right because it was not possible to have conducting teachers at that generation. Nowadays, of course, Taiwan has produced many award-winning young conductors year after year now. I was so sure that's my calling in life and I didn't take no for an answer. My parents said I couldn't have a teacher. I said, okay, if I could not have a teacher, well, I have orchestra conductor every week. So I memorized my violin part completely. So every rehearsal I could be looking at the conductor and he looked around. I was the only kid looking up at him all the time. The whole time. <laughs> Everybody else was buried in the music. Not knowing I was trying to steal his craft at age 10. So I can tell you, I can still analyze conducting and forget to eat and forget to sleep. I mean, that was what my passion, not knowing the whole package of what's required to be a conductor. Like I said, if I knew conductor had to talk this much, <laughs> especially in America, and then added to to that, the whole leadership, I think I would have run away <laughs> from it. But I was just so determined to learn this craft that was not in my grasp. I mean, there are basically, what, total of seven professional orchestras in Taiwan. And so it's very limited in terms of opportunities, how a young conductor could literally gain a position in Taiwan. So I basically tricked my parents into giving me a ticket to come to America. The YPO from New England Conservatory, they were touring Asia, including Taiwan and Korea. This is under the direction of Benjamin Zander, who's quite well known on Tech Talks. I went backstage 
and my older accompanist who could speak English, for some reason, I see I have so many angels in my musical journey. She asked Mr. Zander, does he have time to listen to this little girl play the violin while he was in town? And he said, oh, of course, come next morning. I didn't have a good violin because I wasn't in music school anymore. I didn't have a piano accompaniment. But I played my Winiowski out of my heart, not knowing what it was going to lead to. After he saw what I could do on the violin, he offered me scholarship on the spot to study violin in Boston. And my parents, that was always their dream. They wanted me to be a concert violinist. So there was no opposition for them to release me. Literally, I stepped foot in Boston three months after that oh encounter with Mr. Gosh. Zander. But deep down, my parents didn't know. I tricked them into giving me a ticket to come to America so I can finally, ha, I can <laughs> finally be a conductor. They still gave me a, a hard time until I won the Marco competition. I became the first woman to ever won the competition since their inception. I still hold the title of being the only woman. I'm hoping the door will be broken wide open in the future because there are a lot more women conductors that can receive quality trainings. And I want to mention my mentor, Marin Alsop, mm. who has created so many wonderful young conductors' careers by her Taki Alsop Fellowship that I still benefit. It's an incredible program that has opened many doors that we thought is impossible for women conductors. Mm. And so there's so many angels out there. I would like to still see more women conductors. I remember making a debut in Mannheim, Germany. This is where Mozart visited and heard the incredible clarinets and started to include clarinets later in his symphonies. And I can't believe when I made debut in May of 2021, I was on the front page of the local news because I was only second woman conductor they have seen in their 230 plus year of history. Oh my gosh. We have a lot more women instrumentalists and conductors in America. We often forget that there are parts of the world that is still quite conservative when it comes to women conductors. Oh yeah. It took me a long time <laughs> to finally get to that podium. And maybe I'll share one more personal story if it's okay for me to talk about challenging times. Please. And I so appreciate hearing how both of you turned challenges into opportunities. I mean, you took the pandemic in your hand and you launch a global podcast. And so this is what I call making lemonade out of lemon. You know, you have heard a lot of people say, but I like to emphasize the one thing that we need to make lemonade drinkable is sugar. It's the positive energy. And so let me share my lowest moment. I've gotten all the degrees there is to get. When I became a doctorate candidate at University of Michigan. I was teaching 25 to 40 beginners in piano and violin. Pretty much all my church friends, kids grew up with me teaching them. And I have to say, it was a trying time for me on my personal passion for music. Because when you have to teach Twinkle Twinkle 40 times a week, you have to make it fresh for every kid that comes around. I love kids, I love teaching, but you really have to love music mm -hmm. to make that fun for every kid. And I was drowning in life. I was not able to, you know, make ends meet. And I wasn't conducting. 
I wasn't doing everything I love. And so I didn't hear concerts for a year and a half because after you achieve candidacy, you're no longer part of the program. And I said to myself after one day teaching so exhausting, what am I doing? My soul is so dry. Mm. I have to get myself nourished. I'm an artist. I no longer have the inspiration. I drag my exhausted body into Hill Auditorium. Oftentimes, Berlin Phil, Yo-Yo Ma, a similar statue come through University of Michigan. But that night, it wasn't world famous. I don't even remember which group played. It was just a symphony concert. And I remember I walked in second half. It was Tchaikovsky Pathetic Symphony. I played. I've conducted many times as a student. But never before I experienced the despair that Tchaikovsky wrote into that bassoon solo. Hmm. When I heard that bassoon solo, I think my neighbor just thought maybe a lunatic was sitting next to them. <laughs> I start bawling uncontrollably because of my own despair. I understood what Tchaikovsky was trying to write and express. And I had a wonderful realization at that point that I realized it's a privilege and an honor to possess a gift to create something meaningful and beautiful to share with others. And so I promised myself, even though at that point, the amount of rejection letters was more than the notes I ever conducted. I'm not kidding you. You name it, I've applied it. I almost gave up after 18 years dreaming to be a conductor since 10. But I promised myself, if one day someone was willing to give me a chance, I will always conduct like it's the last time I get to make music. And I can tell you a lot of people didn't know the backstory. And of course, when they first see me conducting, they were probably, whoa, where did all that energy came from? Well, that energy came from all those years of wanting to do something, wanted to express something, and yet I didn't have the chance. Almost every time to make music feels like the last time. You just don't know when the next time is going to happen. You know, we're still living with this pandemic for a little while. and. I am grateful for the experience I have from University of Michigan because it made me treasure every opportunity. Every time counts. It's not about you only save for the best performance in the best hall. Mm. Even if you have just 10 people attending or just a virtual concert, I tried to tell Chicago Sinfoniata when we were back recording virtually that I think the best virtual concert I have seen is not the one that is perfect technically, even though we hope every time we could nail that achievement. But I think the one that catches my heart virtually are still the one that look like live performances, that we're taking a chance. And this is hard to do. And I'm going to share it here. Some other conductors might quote <laughs> me. I grew up with a sister who she's into every forms of pop music except classical music. And so <laughs> I always base her appreciation to know whether I've done my job. If she can appreciate a Beethoven symphony, then I really have made the case for Beethoven symphony. That's not taken for granted. The audience who may not know the repertoire like we do, their perception is as natural as one could expect. Meaning they know when we're just tuning in and playing it safe. Or we're holding hands at the edge of a cliff 
and say "kumbaya" and then fly together. <laughs> and of course, I tell the orchestras, "No one dies. I will catch you all." Uh, but but you all know what I mean.、Yes. You know, going out there on the stage. Yes, you have done your rehearsals, but just putting yourself out there, being willing to take a chance, living the moment. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And that I think I treasure even more now throughout the pandemic times. Oh my gosh, we can feel what you're sharing with us, and the willingness to share your journey because you're having so much success now. You're doing so many things, so many brilliant things, and it's easy to make the assumption that the doors were just always opened for you everywhere, that's right. and that that's how you climbed that ladder. But really, to know that many of us are in that boat of struggle for a time, and then to just have that awareness to say that opportunity once it's there. To never take it for granted, I do think the pandemic has made it easier for more people to get into that space. And I have been so much more personally. I think we talk about this a lot. Invested in the connection with our audience. Yes. And if it's coming from that place, that's everything you said. It's just so great. Well, thank you. Yeah, you never know when there's going to be a man in the audience who's having that moment. Yes. Based on something that you are putting out there, it's very easy, I think, as an orchestral musician, to become very jaded、mm -hmm. and be like, "This is the fifth time that I've played Chike Five in the past two years," but it's not the fifth time that everyone in the audience has heard it. That's、yes. right. And it might be the first time for a lot of those people. And how lucky are we that we have something to share? Yeah. I've been in that place in the audience too. Just. Balling, and I couldn't really explain why. Yeah, yeah, it's a powerful thing we have. Yes, what you just said is what I actually love. Knowing more about the musicians I respect is their struggles. How did they turn the page? How did they persevere? We always read someone's bios. But I always want to read the parts that didn't make it into the bios. You want the unauthorized biography, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the gritty details. That's right. That's right. That's the secret recipe of someone's career. How do you turn the page? And so now a lot of young conductors, they're going through what I went through. Then I can tell them, you're not alone. I've been there, done that. What I would encourage for all of us when we have something of a pullback. Maybe just to backtrack what we talked about, that sugar and the lemon. Yes, I was thinking. If that. you could find something positive、mm -hmm. out of a very negative situation, life is not going to be perfect. I try to tell every young conductor that comes to our program, we listen to so many great recordings、uh, when we're preparing for our next engagement. But I try to tell them, listen to the bad recordings too, because it informs you. Where are the problematic places that could happen?、Mm. They didn't have time to fix it. That's why it's on the recording. <laughs> What a great idea to go back for a conductor and listen to those for clues. Yes,、yeah. we're all learning from someone's experience. Don't expect your next engagement to be perfect. Right. I think we have this. We got to be perfect. We got to be a machine. We got to nail that. But I think music is more than that. Now I've worked much more with European orchestras, and I can really tell the difference between the attitudes. It's more about music making than perfection, if I may put it that way. In terms of even the audition process, 
they're trying to pick out, can I live with this person as a musician versus, well, that passage has a little, you know, blip. I can't live with that. It was just very interesting. And I think, if I may say this, I find the European orchestra musicians in general happier musicians than the ones in America. I, you know, I go there with the American efficiency. <laughs> I get everything done. I try to let them go early, and I was shocked. They're like four hands raised. Could we go through this passage? That pass, not necessary for perfection, but they want to feel absolutely like they know how to do every phrase. They want to digest the piece like it's a slow cooked meal, and not like a fast food put together. <laughs> a lot of young conductors, they're given one rehearsal programs where you have to put tricky young people's concert with actors or family series, and that's hard to get into the music. It's about efficiency. But I've learned from my vast guest conducting experience, music is a process in every way. Rehearsal is a process. I've found that if you make the process enjoyable. The result will actually be better、mm. if people enjoy working with you. They enjoy making that music with you. Music making reflects who we are deep down. The best compliments I always view coming from the musicians who can remember what they did with me the last time I conducted them. I think that says a whole lot. That I left an impression on them that they can exactly call out the piece they did with me. Ten years ago, that's pretty remarkable.、Mm -hmm. Absolutely, this whole idea of adding sugar to the lemonade—it's just so great. We've been talking about that, even just in terms of trying to make difficult progress. It is much easier. Of course, there are a lot of problems to discuss, and I know you live in this world when you are working with the Sinfonietta because diversity and inclusion is a major challenge.、Yes. But I feel like it's so much more impactful to translate those messages of needed change, if you can do so without getting negative. That's right. It's a hard balance, but it is something that we it deeply resonates with us because that is really what we're striving for here too. And I've witnessed from Chicago Sinfonietta's own experience, every one of our program is hard to put together. For example, Project W, our musicians really turn a corner in terms of understanding what it takes to champion for a specific mission. So here, two of you who knows the repertoire so well, we perform Florence Price, Jennifer Higdon,、mm -hmm. Rina Esmail, and Dora Pejecevic. That's all we programmed. Jennifer Higdon is probably the most recognizable、yeah. out of the four. <laughs> Florence Price is more well known just because she became the first African American woman composer whose work was premiered by a major orchestra back in the early '30s when Chicago Symphony premiered her work. But like Rina Esmail was making her way up, and Dora Pejacevic literally. Was the forgotten name? She was the first symphonic composer in Croatia. She happened to be a woman that only lived to her mid thirties. She died one year after giving birth to her only son. When I heard her symphony in F sharp minor, you heard Strauss. 
Bruckner, like tone poems. And so we did probably the American premiere of her symphony 100 years after it received premiere in Vienna. That was an extreme program. Just to use mm. that as an example, I mean, good thing we didn't have musicians revolt at our hands in terms of, <laughs> we don't want to play this program. But <laughs> I think we were able to work as a group to really understand Project W happened during a time when Me Too movement was really, so Rina's piece was retitled Me Too. Oh, wow. yeah, and wow. we were very supportive of that. And I think the orchestra realized that we were so ahead of the curve. Nowadays, you look at Philadelphia, Chicago Symphony, everybody is New York Phil. It's interesting how the Sinfoniata was ahead of the curve before the giants start to move. It does take courage. It does take teamwork. I so appreciate learning that lesson with Chicago Sinfonietta. Like you mentioned, to champion for diversity is not easy. Any transition is not easy. You know, once we get into the main thing, that's easy. It's always the transition going from main thing to the development or the development yeah. when things get really crazy. Mm -hmm. Same in life. We have to have patience. We have to have more wisdom and more tolerance. My sister often helps reminding me that in our pursuit to excellence, oftentimes we forget that we have to have more tolerance for differences with other people. There's so many parallel between our music making and life. So for example, I always tell our young conductors, you have to be on the bus to drive the bus. <laughs> Meaning you can't conduct so ahead of the orchestra that the orchestra lose touch with your beat. Oh yeah. You, you understand what I mean? Uh -huh. Yes. <laughs> it's so interesting. You have to hear what you're getting and maintain that connection. And then you can impart more differences, like dynamic-wise or emotion-wise or tempo-wise. But if you get off the bus, the bus is going to not be controlled. I think diversity, inclusion is similar, that we have to somehow get everybody comfortable first mm. before really move forward together. Even getting everybody to be comfortable, I think sometimes that could be a challenge. One year, in our Dr. King tribute concert, we invited young Chicago authors to be emceeing between musical selections. We invited young poets to write poetries reflecting our times. And when we got those poems, we were taking aback. I mean, this was a time where police brutality on young African-Americans were rampant, and we decided as a team, well, that was our time. We should let it reflect our time. I, I, we were bracing for like, there may be audience calling us, angry phone calls, really strong reactions. Mm. In the concert, you literally hear the audience gasp during the poetry reading. Everybody understood what the messages were about, and it was delivered in such a way with genuine feelings. It was actually one of the most memorable MLK program we have ever done. And it took courage for all of us to say, brace ourselves, are we ready for this? Mm. And we were willing to take whatever comes our way. And yet I think people often forget art is not just entertainment. Art reflects our soul, our times. And even if it reflects the uncomfortable messages all of us as artists, we have the duties to be true 
to ourselves, but also to the world we serve and to be able to be brave, to pass a message that can help the world heal in some ways. Mm, I love that. Absolutely. We were just talking with our previous guest, Dr. Molly Gabrian, who does a lot of research about how the brain works and how we can use that information as musicians in our practice, in our art. And one of the most profound things that she says that really has stuck with me is that if there's no struggle, there's no growth. Hmm. That's right. If you are feeling that feeling of discomfort and frustration, that means that you're learning. How beautiful. That is so pertinent, not even just for us musicians. Obviously, we're learning something that's difficult. There's going to be something challenging all the time to feel that as a cue. But what if we take that and we apply it to life? Yes. And if you're feeling discomfort and struggle with something, it probably means that there's an opportunity for growth there. Mm-hmm. Yes. When we think of, for example, Tchaikovsky, who may not have produced the last three symphonies if he weren't struggling with his own personal struggles, whether it's relationship, whether it's love, whether it's faith, destiny. I mean, that bassoon solo, it came out of despair. And would he have written it if he had a happy life all along? I mean, we have a saying in Chinese that artists in general, including writers, somehow has to go through this struggle and strife before their art reaches a peak. And what you just shared, Stephanie, is so beautiful. And so for all of us, whatever we are struggling with, just to know that's part of leading to something even more beautiful and more more meaningful in life, that will make that struggle so worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you for those who are involved in classical music organizations right now that are actively trying to take the steps forward in diversity inclusion. Obviously, Chicago Sinfonietta really created a model for that experience. And there's many places, including here in D.C., where that work is very new. Yes. There's a bit of adjustment for all of us. Obviously, there's a lot for us to wrap our heads around. But in terms of inclusion and representation in the organization itself, the musicians, we have a lot of listeners who are freelancers who are going through this experience of change. Yes. Any insights that you can share about your experience with the Sinfonietta and how they sort of worked to set it up, the model that they created? I think the key is that every constituency of an organization will need to have equally passionate commitment. I think there's no quick fix. Yes, you can just try to squeeze in composers of color here and there, but if you don't do it systematically, meaning you just do it for the surface of looking at nice, I think it doesn't work. I think it comes from every constituency. Our board, literally is one of the most diverse board in Chicago. And it takes time to get there. And our musicians, we have clause built in our CBA, which is the Collective Bargaining Agreement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How musicians of color will be actively 
recruit to make sure that they are seek out because they're already at a very small percentage, right? Even in conservatory level, I'm usually not involved with the CBA details. Yeah. But if it's negotiate between our musicians and administration, that means everybody is really signed up together to really encourage musicians of color to succeed. I'm happy to report. For example, we have had two principals in their early twenties. I mean, one has won the job at 19. Oh my! What's that world like? <laughs> she had to have her parents come and sign the the, the contract. You know, since she hasn't reached 21. She's got a long way until her struggle comes. In. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and we're just so thrilled to see. A young African American violist.、Yeah. She happened to be, and she's going to take the music world by storm. I'm sure in a few years.、Mm-hmm. And our entire staff, when we're programming, our new CEO, our former CEO, and me. I mean, we literally go through each other and said, "Do we have quality presentation of composers of color, of composers of African Americans, Latino women?" We try to check each other. Really hard. I mean, we go really hard to say, have we done what we could to champion them? But also, not only just percentage, but we try to seek out quality as well. Because I think so often the quick fixes that just put somebody in there. But I think art is art. There's so much quality in minority musicians now that it would be. A shame for people to not respect that. Yes, Florence Price has many compositions. Even Beethoven has good compositions and not so good compositions.、Yeah. And so、mm-hmm. it's really building around. Okay, how do we champion unknown composers with quality marketing, with quality materials surrounding that composer to really make a big splash? Because I see so many quick fixes, but Do people really buy into it? Do the audience come away really appreciating these unknown composers? I mean, I want them to last. I think they deserve to be in the main repertoire, and it takes more commitment than okay, that just include one here in the MLK program, and it takes courage. Chicago Sinfonietta. If you look at the diversity institution, they have done a graft. And it's shocking to see that Chicago Sinfonietta has program. This is from 2019. I think around 56% of our program are by composers of color, and the next one are down in the 20-some percentage. And I'm not asking every orchestra to repeat what we have built up over three decades,、mm-hmm. but maybe start small, but a strong commitment in a way. That okay, not just you know one here, one there, but really have it throughout the season, and even over several seasons to really create a bridge. You know, we try to introduce someone new, like Catherine Bostic, who became the first African American member of the Academy. We're talking about the Hollywood、uh-huh. uh, culture, and she became the first African American woman only, if I remember correctly, 2016. That's like whoa, that's really late. And so she's our artist in residence, and we try to include her new piece. For the ensemble, when we have to do very small 
ensemble size during the pandemic, mm -hmm. same size as Copeland's Fanfare for uh, Common Men, mm -hmm. because I'm hoping other orchestras would program would be easier to program for them using the same force and then we're about to perform her great migrations a symphony celebration of august wilson and we're probably only the second or the third performance of the piece so we're introducing her with a series of performances and hoping that will have a ripple effect out to the world yeah, well, hopefully we can get some momentum going here. And I love what you said about the commitment to doing one thing consistently over time so that it sticks with the audience. Mm -hmm. That makes so much more sense than one here, one there. Right. Yeah, definitely. The idea that the musicians of an organization also can really have a lot of say in how to progress forward. The fact that it's in the CBA by nature means the musicians have to be involved. They have to be invested too. Yes. It's good for us to hear sometimes, especially as freelancers in our regional jobs, we don't necessarily feel like we have a whole lot, uh, a strong enough voice yes. in those organizations. But really, it, as you said, commitment from every level, it's very important to acknowledge that that goes all the way down to the people who play the concerts. That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, this has been so wonderful, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for finding time for us. Keep up the great work. I just love the two of you. Your oh. humor, your down to earth. And if I have a second life, I want to be a violist. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, Arcrest. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Club. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogerman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.